Lovely to see you all. Good afternoon. God, look at that. Great, some interaction. Love it. Um, so for those who don't know, don't know me, my name's Dan Wake. I'm one of the uh, leaders here in the Hub. And um, I guess it's just really lovely to see you all, particularly you know, in this room here, but also online. I'll just look at various cameras and hopefully I'll catch one of them at the right time. If I just look at Matt's probably trying to cut. Anyway, yeah. Um, all right. Um, okay. Oh, we've got the slide up. Great. So the series we're in at the minute is called The Character of God. And uh, just to briefly set the scene and recap, uh, we're drawing uh, the framework for this series from God's self-declaration of his character from Exodus 34, uh, which says, "Great, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So it's these characteristics that form each session, theme, or focus that we'll be drawing from. Uh, We'll be drawing from individual stories in the Bible, the overarching biblical story, and also contemporary stories to unpack and explore each of these characteristics. And as you hopefully know, Nancy launched us off looking at the name uh, of God, Yahweh, which is written as Lord in the Bible in capital letters. It's the personal and relational name of God. Fry then spoke to us on the Lord is compassionate. Yahweh, the personal, relational God, is the one who relates to us in his concern, and he is love in action. And Ray then spoke on our online service last week on the Lord is gracious, in which he reminded us of God's graciousness to all and that we too should should show graciousness to others. If you haven't watched that talk, I just recommend you do go back and have a watch of that. Ray did a great job for us. And now we come to my turn today. And I shall be sharing on, the Lord is slow to anger. I just want to pray again just as we start. Lord, I want to thank you for who you are. Lord, I want to thank you for who you've shown yourself to be to uh, many of us here today and uh, to many throughout history. Lord, we want to know all about your character, not just pick and choose the, the bits we like <laughs> or the bits we think we like and the bits we're not sure about. So Jesus, we invite you here today, Spirit of God, we pray that you come here and fill this place with your presence and reveal to yourself to us, Lord, as we explore what it means for you to be slow to anger. Would you encounter us, we pray, and would you reveal what it means for you to be slow to anger to us? If we need that phrase, redeeming, would it be redeemed for each of us, we pray. But thank you, God, for who, we, who you are and to meet with us here today, we pray. Amen. So I would imagine that that word anger provokes a number of different responses from different ones of us sat in this room or watching online. And particularly so, perhaps if we think about a God who is said to exhibit anger. Take evolutionary biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins, for example. It's an older and perhaps uh, fairly well-known quote 
But in his book, The God Delusion, he writes this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I took, took some practice to get through that, I have to say. <laughs> it took a few goes, honestly, I had to practice that one. But I suspect the vast, the vast majority of us here today wouldn't agree with Dawkins. But maybe there are some of us sat here today who can at least understand why Dawkins might think the way he does. Particularly when it comes to reading some of the difficult verses in the Bible and when we try to read these verses in isolation. So whilst most of us will uh, likely not agree with Dawkins' description of God, maybe some of us see God a bit like this. Do you see God like that? (laughs) A primarily angry God who is just waiting for us to stuff up and make a mistake. The disciplinarian ready to pounce on our errors of judgment. Even if you don't hold that view of God, I would imagine most of us have at times grappled with some of the stories we read in the Bible and verses like these. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. Exodus 15.7. And he unleashed against them his hot anger, his wrath, indignation and hostility. A band of destroying angels. And he prepared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave them over gave them over to the plague. Psalm 78, 49 to 50. And it's not just issues that with, uh, sorry, and it's not just issues with what we read in the Bible. I want to acknowledge there are likely some of us who have been on the receiving end of another person's anger. And it's not been pleasant. No doubt we all have, but perhaps for a few here there is a lasting trauma. And perhaps for some more than the occasional experience. There may be also others who struggle with anger. It's the thing you struggle with, the monkey on your back. Others struggle with greed, with selfishness, with love of money, addictions. This goes on, but yours is anger. And much of what I've said already might lead some of us to want to conclude that anger is a bad characteristic, that it's a bad emotion, that anger has no place in my life and in society. We all need to simply be more loving and accepting. Some of us may also find it easy to relate to a God who is loving and gracious and compassionate, for example. But the idea of an angry God even if slow to anger, is difficult to relate with. And I can understand that. But my hope for this afternoon, though, is that we might come to a place of seeing that the anger God expresses 
is a good anger. Not the type described by Dawkins, that the godly characteristic of slow to anger is a healthy attribute to embody. Plus, I also hope that we can see a healthy anger as a positive emotion for us as well. That we might come to not just tolerate this attribute, but to experience the love of God through the anger of God and to embody that same characteristic. And so to the Bible. And a God who we are told is slow to anger. The phrase slow to anger in Hebrew is erikapayim. Slow to anger is one way to interpret this Hebrew phrase. But does anyone know, apart from the teaching team, because we've discussed it in our meetings, so no cheating. Uh, anyone know what erikapayim literally means? Ah, there is one. Well done. Yes, long of, long of nose, or it literally means uh, long of nostrils. So there you go. If you've got a big nose, long nostrils, in the image of God. There you go. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, long of nostrils, abounding in love and faithfulness. It has a nice flow to it, doesn't it? The common metaphor for anger in the Bible is heat which was thought to originate inside a person, boiling up inside and being released through the nostrils. I don't know about you when I think of that. I do think of like when you get angry, your face does get hot, doesn't it? And you, you feel like your nose is getting hot. So you can understand where that comes from. The idea then, when we think about God, is that, this, that it takes a long time for God's uh, hot anger to be released. God has very long nostrils. And to use our language, God does not have a short fuse. In the words of uh, author John Mark Comer, you can make God mad, but you really have to work at it. I love that. <laughs> this slowness to anger is further captured by earlier English translations, which instead use the word long-suffering. And I think this captures the idea uh, that quite often anger is birthed out of a sense of injustice, of pain, of things not being as we expect them to be, or even as they should be. And so they cause us to suffer. And in this regard then, God absorbs pain and injustice for a long time before his anger comes forth. And so the Lord, Yahweh, is slow to anger. He is long of nostrils. He is long-suffering. So this idea then of a God who is on the edge of his seat, waiting for us to slip up or make a mistake before pouncing on us and letting rip is just not how God describes his character. And I don't think it's what the Bible tells of his character and how his anger works. I want to share two short stories from the Bible. So the first story is the Exodus story in Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament. And it's also the context in which we find God's self-declaration of his character, uh, the verses which we read out earlier about God's character. So drawing from Exodus chapters 13 to 34, we see God miraculously rescue the Israelites from oppression and slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. 
Despite their their miraculous deliverance of newfound freedom, the Israelites aren't far into their journey when they start to complain, grumble, and rebel. They are disobedient, despite the fact that God had rescued them from slavery and that he provided for all their needs. I think if I were God, and let's be grateful I'm not, I think I would have had enough of these uh, people already in the story, and I think I would have just left them to it. But instead, God continues to be faithful to this people he had rescued and had chosen. God gives them the Ten Commandments along with the instructions of what keeping these commandments looks like in practice. Amongst these, it is worth noting is that they are not to make uh, or worship idols or or gods. And in chapter 24 of Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain where God is giving, uh, going to give Moses tablets of stone with the laws and commandments written on them for the people. It is for the benefit of the people that God is giving these to them. Moses stays up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. But unfortunately, this proves too long. Uh, for the impatient Israelites in the camp at the bottom of the mountain. And they build an idol uh, in the form of a golden calf. Knowing what is transpiring at the bottom of the mountain, the Lord says to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, I love that, whom you brought up, you, Moses, you brought these people out, (laughs) have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you a great nation. (laughs) Despite that, God does relent. He doesn't destroy the people. And it's interesting to note Moses' role in dialoguing with God around his anger towards the Israelites. But that's another preach, or another, even another series for another time. Moses shares in God's anger towards the Israelites as he returns from being up the mountain to find them partying and worshipping the golden calf, the idol they had made. So in response, Moses smashes the tablets. So despite all of this, God gives them a second chance, plus many, 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 many more chances after this. As the cycle of unfaithfulness and disobedience continues. And he gives them new stone tablets. It is in this moment, then, that God reveals his character to Moses by saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, etc., It's in Israel's rebellion, in their disobedience, in their unfaithfulness and rejection of God, that Yahweh exercises great restraint and mercy, being slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness to his people. We see in this story that God is long of nostrils. He is long-suffering. He is indeed slow to anger. The second story is from the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John. And there we are reading from John. This short story is found in each of the four Gospels. It's the story of Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. 
When it was almost time for, part, for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all the temple courts, sorry, and drove, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what it, what it is written, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Making a whip of cords, driving the money changers from the temple, overturning tables, scattering their money. That's quite the expression of anger. Why does Jesus take the action he does in the temple? Well, it's because instead of the temple being a place of worship and service to God, it had been turned into a marketplace where animals were sold for money. It's also likely that the money changers and the sellers were taking advantage of those who had come to offer sacrifices to God. I think in some of the other Gospels it talks about a den of robbers. You made this into a, a den of robbers. It's in God's house that this is taking place. And the disciples recognized Jesus' response as an act of zeal for the house of God. Jesus' actions are driven by deep, earnest concern for how people and the temple are being treated. Injustice and abuse of power are at the driving seat of his angry response. But interestingly, do we read this thinking Jesus has an anger management problem that he should really get therapy for? Or do we read this story and something deep within us resonates with the actions and our perceived uh, emotions of Jesus? We, I imagine, sense the injustice, the corruption people being taken advantage of, and recognize that Jesus won't have it any longer. Internally, I suspect our hearts, in many ways, quicken and beat in line with Jesus as we cheer him on. Just consider your own response when you've heard that story before. I also want to show you a short video that appeared this week, uh, following the shooting of 19 children and two teachers in a school in Texas. It's a video of Steve Kerr, coach of NBA, that's basketball side warriors, who refused to talk basketball at a press conference and instead delivered this emotional speech. It's not the whole thing, and some of you may have seen it, but I do want to just show you it.
you sense it when you, maybe you watched this before, can you sense that sense of anger that's been building up? And I think this is what we see showing that. I think that illustrates something of what we see here of Jesus in that story. Yes, the raw emotion of anger fueled by injustice, corruption, abuse of power, but a deliberate and strategic act to address this injustice and ultimately to bring about the events of his crucifixion. Just in the same way this guy got up there, you know, he obviously thought about this. You know, he'd come saying, I'm not going to talk about basketball. He'd given it thought. And, um, you know, I've not shown the whole clip, partly because of time. Um, but the point isn't, you know, today to talk about the gun politics of America or ownership. But as the video goes, that goes on, he calls out senators to act and to change things. And it's clear to see that in amongst the rawness of his anger, it's channeled to a deliberate and strategic action. And I think that's something of what's going on then in the temple for Jesus. It's a deliberate act to bring about change. And like I said, bring about ultimately the events of his crucifixion. And there are just, yeah, that's the end of the second story. There are other biblical texts we could look at if we had more time. We could look at Genesis 15 where God tells Abraham that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. The point being, God could not justify acting in bringing his judgment on the people as they had not met the full measure of evil required for him to act. God is the one who shows restraint, slowness of anger. We could look at the city of Nineveh, for whom God showed great restraint and patience and a desire for repentance and restoration, despite great evil going on in the city. There are many occasions in the Psalms where the psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord, in the face of oppression and persecution? In some ways, the psalmist sees God as slow to respond. But there are many more texts we could look at, but we just don't have time this afternoon. But what I do want to say is that the most frequent way God deals with evil is to hand the evildoers over to themselves. The Apostle Paul affirms this in Romans chapter 1, where I think three times God's response to people's wickedness is to give them over, it says. To give them exactly what they want. We must understand that this comes after warning after warning. God is slow to anger. We began briefly considering a variety of views and approaches to the Bible, which speaks of God who gets angry. We then also briefly looked at what the Bible has to say about times when God expresses his anger. But how then does that translate to us, both individually but also collectively as a community? What can we glean from the Bible with, our, with respect to how we see God and how we deal with the emotion of anger in our lives? Firstly, God at times responds in anger. It's part of his character. Yahweh, the Lord himself, identifies one of his characteristics as being anger, albeit slow to anger or long-suffering. We see God get angry at times throughout the Bible, including in both the stories we've just looked at. As difficult as it may be for some of us, or in spite of the questions it may raise, we must acknowledge that the Bible tells us that God gets angry. Again, God himself says so. But let me ask us a question. 
particularly to those of us who struggle at times with the concept of a God who gets angry. Do you really want a God who doesn't get angry? Do you really want a God who is apathetic towards war crimes being committed? Do you really want a God who looks the other way towards physical, emotional, sexual abuse? Do you really want a God who is apathetic towards innocent children being murdered in their school classroom? Do you really want a God who is unconcerned when women and children are sold into slavery? Do you really want a God who shows a lack of interest when a suicide bomber blows himself up in a crowd? Do you really want a God who shrugs at greedy multinational corporations whilst those in poverty need to decide whether to eat or to stay warm? Do you really want a God who doesn't get angry at the injustice in the world? The Bible shows us a God Sorry, the Bible shows us a God who gets angry at injustice and evil, and he responds. Most often this response is to let a person or a nation intentionally, intentionally sinful and destructive behavior have its way with them. God hands them over to their destructive path. The Bible also tells us that God is committed to one day removing all evil and injustice from this world. I, for one, one, am glad that God gets angry. But I'm also glad that although God gets angry, he's slow to anger. The Bible tells us that although God gets angry, he is in fact a very patient God. We saw that in our Exodus story. And if you keep reading that narrative, you'll see the cycle of Israel's disobedience and unfaithfulness and lack of trust in God continue. And yet he remains faithful to the people. Even in his anger, he remains faithful. He is long of nostrils, long-suffering, slow to anger. Thirdly, God's anger is not the opposite of his love but because of his love. We saw in the story of Jesus clearing the temple that it is out of Jesus' love for people and his strong sense of justice for people that he gets angry and drives out the sellers and money changers for abusing their position. What I'd like to say to us is that it's not just in God's love that we can encounter him, but also in his anger. Author Mark Buchanan in his book, The Holy Wild, trusting in the character of God, tells this story in his chapter about the wrath of God. I don't remember my father telling me he loved me until I was older, almost an adult. He probably did, but I can't recall. He certainly showed me in varied and tangible ways that he loved me, his gibitzing, his many shoulder-clamping hugs, his hand-picked gift at Christmas, usually tucked up far under the tree so that I find it last of all. But I remember the first time I was sure of his love, sure enough to rest in it, to let go of feeling I needed to earn it from a paymaster or pry it loose from a closed fist. It was a time he got so angry that maybe wrath is a better word. Wrath seems so full-blooded, every last nerve bristling, every bone and sinew awake. 
He was wrathful, my father, and it was on my behalf. My brother and I and some friends were playing street hockey in the wide curve in front of our house when the neighborhood bully wandered down the street. This was a kid I'd been having some trouble with. He was three years older than me and big. He'd often wait for me on a pathway I had to walk on my way home to and from school, on my way to and from school. Then he'd shove me, punch me, push me down. On this occasion, he grabbed my bike and started horsing around in it. I yelled at him to stop. Make me, he said, and I went over. He threw my bike on the ground and then started to thrash me. I fell under the blows. And then it stopped. I looked up and saw my oppressor hovering against the sky. But now his face was terror-stricken. My father, who had been watching the bully's antics from our window, had come to my defence. He grabbed the boy by his coat collar and lifted him straight off the ground like a man hanging from a noose and shook him. Don't you ever, my father bellowed, hurt my son again. It was enough. Here was a love I could count on to protect me, to defeat my enemies, to make things right. I basked in that for weeks. His wrath had made my father heroic in my eyes. I could sing in the shadow of his wings. Strange but true, I learned to rest in my father's love because of his wrath. That's powerful, isn't it? I learned so I learned to rest in my father's love because of his wrath. It's because of God's love, because of his faithfulness, because of his compassion that God is moved at times to respond in anger. May you know the love of God even in his anger. And fourthly, finally, May we also be long of nostril. It seems clear that the Bible presents a case for a healthy view and expression of anger. We might have heard the phrase righteous anger before. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus writes, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. It's clear then that anger is not bad. It is a valid human emotion that reflects the character of God. But of course it can become distorted or corrupted when we sin. That is perhaps a tricky distinction to make at times especially when you're angry. But perhaps it's not allowing our anger to be driven by selfish pride and personal provocation. And to not let the sun go down uh, doesn't mean that I need to call Robin tonight before the sun literally goes down to sort out our beef. Not that we haven't had a beef. but The point is, the heart of the instructions is to not let anger stew. Not let anger stew. So a final point on this 
We're created in the image of God. And we're to be like Jesus. So let's allow ourselves to have a healthy anger, but keep it in check and under control so that we do not sin. In many ways, anger can, sorry, in many ways, anger can identify what we truly expect of things or people. So may our, may our expectations align with Jesus and with his kingdom and not our own prideful expectations. We've looked at what for many is a challenging idea or topic this afternoon, the anger of God. In many ways, we've only really just scratched the surface and there is much more that could be explored on this topic to see how the anger of God is actually a redemptive characteristic. But I hope this brief exploration has been an encouragement and I hope it has demonstrated that God is indeed slow to anger and that his anger is driven by love and concern for people. If this has been tricky for you in any way, may you, uh, maybe you really struggle with the concept of a God who gets angry. Or maybe you have been on the wrong end of someone's anger. Or maybe you struggle with how you handle your own anger. If so, please talk with someone you came with or someone you trust and do ask uh, someone to pray with you. There are also some of us up here at the front too if you want any of us to pray with you. Finally, I want to close with this short quote from John Stott, who defines God's anger as his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Amen. And thank you.